I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Two weeks ago, after a horrific school shooting, in Uvalde, Texas. As details emerged about how the town's police force failed to protect its children, the usual cries of, thank God that kind of thing doesn't happen here in Canada, were nowhere near as loud as they usually are. That's because in Nova Scotia, at the exact same time, we were learning new details about what our own police force, the RCMP, did and did not do to protect its citizens during the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. Not a day goes by that I don't wake up and think about the victims and their families and their kids. We have now learned that during critical hours, while the shooter was at large and killing, the RCMP response was bungled, delayed, misinformed, a commanding officer was drinking that night, even that some members of the force were warning their own families about the killer before any alert went out to the public. So at least in this case, we are no better at all than the United States. And as this inquiry is demonstrating, once a community loses faith in its police to protect them from life-threatening situations, that community starts to wonder, well then, why are they even here? So what have we learned so far about the RCMP's response or lack of it? What questions still need answering? And will any of it result in consequences or change or even closure for the families of the victims? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Greg Mercer is the Atlantic Canada reporter for The Globe and Mail. He has been covering the Porta Peak Inquiry. Hello, Greg. Hey, Jordan. The last time we talked, I remember that there were questions around this inquiry as to if police officers would even testify. Have they been speaking? Where is the inquiry at now? So yes, we, we have we have been hearing from a significant number of, of officers, both frontline and uh, and some senior Nova Scotia RCMP officers who who directed the police response, um, and and uh, that that continues, and there there are more to come. How has that testimony gone? And I know in a minute we'll get into you know some specific things, but just in general, what what's it been like? So some of it has been quite gripping, especially, uh, you know, the accounts from the first officers on the scene, you know, in, in port pic where this attack began, you know, describing in detail what they saw, uh, you know, what they were up against. Uh, there's, there have been other moments that have been uh, quite eye-opening in terms of mistakes made by the police. And, and uh, I think there's been some revelations that, that we have been, uh, we've been quite surprised at. Give me quickly the big picture on those ones. What are we actually learning as we go through this 
that we didn't know in the uh, days, weeks, months following the shooting? I will say the more we learn, the worse it looks for the Nova Scotia RCMP. Uh, the more detail we are getting around the the response is, it, frankly, has been really disappointing and frustrating for a lot of families, I think, uh, of this tragedy who, who lost people in this attack. The, the response by the RCMP in general was disorganized. There was a lot of confusion over who was in charge. There were a lot of decisions that were made by senior RCMP officials that, that don't make a lot of sense, that many people feel added to the death toll, quite frankly, that, that lives could have been saved if they had, had been more prepared and more organized when this attack began. I'm going to get you to walk me through some of what we've heard. Uh, but first, the other thing that you've reported on is that families, uh, some of them, perhaps even most of them, are boycotting this inquiry. Why is that happening? So, so some of those families have come back to the process because they're at a okay. they're at a critical point where they want to hear from specific officers. Um, but you're right. A, a couple of weeks ago, we had most of the families walk away from this process, and they instructed their lawyers to to not participate. And that was that was a response to a decision by the inquiry to allow senior RCMP officials to have uh, special accommodations around uh, how they would be asked to testify. And, and what it meant were these officers did not have to face cross-examination, that the, the families had to submit questions to be vetted by the inquiry. Um, that, that didn't go over very well. And that's, that's not what people wanted when they asked for the inquiry. And so they walked out and they said, this is not what, what we were hoping for. Why would they do that? Why would they keep senior officers from cross-examination? It seems like that's, uh, that's something integral to the process of this kind of inquiry. Absolutely. So when the inquiry was created, it adopted a what they call the trauma-informed mandate, which meant that they were going to handle witnesses um, w- with care. They didn't want to re-traumatize people. They were concerned about PTSD. They were concerned about people's mental health after having gone through this horrible attack. Let's not forget the, you know, the worst mass shooting in Canadian history. But the, the argument of the families who, who lost people in this, in this uh, shooting is that uh, in these cases, the, the, the mental health of the police officers trumped their trauma. They're saying you're, you are allowing them to avoid difficult lines of questioning because uh, they're claiming they've been traumatized. Are they still doing that or has that ended and that's why the families returned? That that has ended. This week we have not seen those special accommodations. I, I believe that the commission has heard uh, the message loud and clear from from some of these families and through the protests that, that they're not going to stand for that, that they will walk away from this inquiry. Um, you know, and, and for an inquiry that, that needs the trust of the public, they need people to believe they're being as transparent as possible. They have to do everything they can to to regain uh, that trust. And so I think I think that's why families have begun to come back and, and, and participate again. I want to get you to walk us through some of the details because, as we discussed uh, before we started recording this show, it, it hasn't really generated quite as many like screaming national headlines as you would expect an exploration of, to your point, the worst uh, shooting incident in Canadian history. Maybe start with the first response, like when word got to RCMP command. What did they do and, and how did the response take shape from the beginning? 
So we now know through the inquiry that within minutes of this, uh, this attack beginning, when, when this gunman began to go to his neighbor's home, going house to house in the community of port pic and murdering people, that those people were calling in to the RCMP and describing in detail in 911 calls who, who was doing the shooting. They were describing his vehicle. And we know that the RCMP did not take those calls seriously. They, they thought that people, that this was perhaps a mental health call, that people were imagining things, that they were misunderstanding what they were seeing. Um, and, and that belief stuck around for a long time in the early stages of this, repo- this response, that the, the RCMP did not believe this guy actually had a lookalike RCMP patrol car, even though they had been told that by people who were under attack. And they it, it just shows how they were skeptical of the information they were getting. How did they justify that at the inquiry to just not uh, take these things seriously? So what they say is, you know, on a typical Saturday night in rural Nova Scotia, we get an awful lot of mental health calls, right? You know, someone may believe that there is someone outside their door with a gun, and, and that's not based in reality. They thought this was another case like that. And every officer, one after the other, has said, I've never seen anything like this in my career. I never imagined this could actually happen. And so that that perception that this kind of thing cannot happen, unfortunately, it clouded their response because they just didn't believe it. When did that begin to change and what happened then? I think it began to change once they got to the scene and, and realized how significant the death toll was. Um, and they began to get information from, from people who... Uh, we're telling them in, in, in uncertain terms, no, my neighbor has built a police car that looks exactly like yours. And he he has been spending months and months preparing for this event. They, they began to change their tone and realize what they were dealing with. I guess my next question is trying to make the leap between when they realize what they're dealing with and how long it took to warn the public and get the word out. And are we delving into that right now? We are. This week in particular, there was a lot of focus on on delays, you know, repeated delays by the RCMP, not just in decisions to, to alert the public, but also once they had decided we're going to send out a photo of this police car that, that this gunman had made, it took a half an hour to, to get that approved, right? This very bureaucratic, top-down response to critical sharing of information that that is exposed a lot of the, the flaws in the way the RCMP uh, even just alert the public in general when, when these kind of things are happening. But we know, I mean, one of the big things, Jordan, was that they took, uh, they took 12 hours to, uh, to alert the public that the gunman was driving uh, this police vehicle. I mean, they had, for three hours, they had it confirmed uh, that, and had a photo and, and could not share that with the public um, for, for a variety of reasons. Why not? Well, there was a, a. They say, well, this was a chaotic event. We could not get approval from senior uh, senior officials. That this, you know, the communications people were waiting for people to respond. You know, emails were missed. I mean, it was a, it was a very clumsy effort to get the message out. There was also among some of the people directing the response a concern that alerting the public that this guy was driving a lookalike police car could cause some vigilantism. They were genuinely worried that if the public knew there was a person driving in a lookalike police car, they might start shooting at all marked police cars, that that civilians would. And and they were, once again, worried about protecting their own over the public. This is not a critique of the way you've been answering these questions, but I've noticed as we go, you know, you've said uh, senior officers or people in charge. who was in charge? Was there somebody that actually took command of this incident response? That's the problem. There were too many people 
who had jumped into this. At, at one point, there was a senior uh, RCMP staff sergeant who early on in the attack phoned his colleagues and said, no, I've been drinking. I've had three or four, sorry, four or five rum drinks. I should not be involved in this. Uh, he, he had his wife later drive him to his to his detachment to get his police radio. And then within an hour, he has inserted himself into the response and is directing officers, making some key decisions that we now know are, were very problematic. This is someone who, who an hour earlier said, I can't work, I've been drinking. You know, and there were other officers who were uh, you know, issuing contradictory uh, directions. And so the, the, the Mounties on the ground have, have testified, it was very confusing to know who do we listen to, who's in charge, what is the chain of command here? In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together and we were gonna prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. I think the infuriating part uh, for me, no doubt for the families and for anybody who's been following this inquiry, is there's a repeated sense that officers had critical information that they didn't share with the public. And I believe last week we even heard, and I want you to explain this a little more because again, it didn't go in very much depth, that some officers were warning their family members despite not sending like a full public alert. Is that true? So that actually came out in the early stages of the inquiry. And and yes, it came up again uh, last week. But the, the allegation is that they were calling uh, their family members, calling loved ones, saying, hey, this guy's on the loose, and sort of giving people a heads up before the public were, were notified of, of this guy's movements. And you can appreciate that, that that is causing a lot of anger among Nova Scotians and particularly among families who, who lost loved ones on the second day of this attack when people were out for a walk, had no idea that there was a gunman on the loose. And the argument is if they had known, they likely would have stayed home or have locked their doors. Have we reached the point yet where we have an understanding of when and why the alert was eventually issued? And yes, what took so long, but also like, why was that call made at that particular moment? So it actually, they, it never was issued. They had made a request to to use the provincial uh, ready alert system. It, he was he was stopped and killed before they, they alerted it. So... On the second day, they were primarily informing the public through Twitter. That's how they shared the photos. Yes, that's what I was referring to. Yeah. Right. So, so that um, they they have, once they realized that he had escaped, they for for a large part of this attack, they believed they had him pinned down in the community of Porta Pic. That's not true. We we know he escaped uh, and and went and and hid away. He slept and then he continued killing people in other parts of Nova Scotia. Once those nine one was one calls came in the next morning, that's when the RCMP realized, no, he's gotten away. We don't have him pinned down. Um, we need to start alerting the public. So they believe there was not a risk to the public because there was this this theory that was being spread among them that he perhaps he had committed suicide. We now know that's not true. So just a series of assumptions and mistakes that, that added to this tragedy. If the purpose of this inquiry is to determine 
what really happened here and who made which mistakes. Are we getting at that? You know, you've talked about uh, trauma-informed response and, and not cross-examining some of the officers. Is the real truth emerging? And I'll ask you this as somebody who covered it while it happened. I think that we are, we are in, you know, awkwardly, clumsily, as this thing stumbles along, we are getting, uh, you know, with each passing day, a clearer picture. There have certainly been bumps in the road. There have certainly been moments that have angered the families who are participating especially around how they've handled key RCMP witnesses. But I do think if you take a step back and you look at what we're learning through this process, we are getting a better picture. Uh, and what it's revealing, frankly, is, is, a very, is a very stumbling response by the RCMP to, to a tragic event. And I think there's going to be a lot of questions that come out of this about how do we prevent this from ever happening again. What questions do you have uh, watching this, and and what do you want to get answered uh, that hasn't been yet? Well, a lot of people are would like to hear from the gunman's uh, common law wife. Uh, she has not spoken publicly at all uh, about what happened, and there are there are family members who feel that she, uh, you know, she kind of watched him prepare for this attack and did nothing to alert anyone. Um, you know, we just would like to hear from her, and I think that people. Uh, are, are curious about what she saw, what she knew. I mean, on the, the day that his attack began, he, he appeared to be tracing the route that he would later take that evening, or sorry, the next morning, when he, when he escaped the police and, and continued his rampage. You know, it appears that she was helping him clear an escape path through the, through the brush uh, on one of his properties that he, we believe, used to, to uh, flee from the police. So she's a key figure, and people would really like to hear from her. Why aren't we? She is still sorting out her own criminal uh, proceedings. She's been, uh, she's been charged with uh, providing him ammunition in this attack. The police have said, uh, and her lawyers have said, she had no idea what, it was, what he was intending to do with this. But while that works its way through the courts, uh, her lawyers have said she cannot participate. What has happened, though, is that she has been redirected to to a, another course uh, through the courts where she's not going to be charged criminally. Once that is that happens, and and she is, uh, it's the restorative justice program. Once that happens, they say she will be freed up to testify with this inquiry. We just aren't there yet. You can tell me if you think I'm dumb for even asking this or not, but I want to pick your brain about the reports that I've seen, and reports are a very uh, loose term for them, I guess. The rumors that have been uh, circulated that one of the reasons the police response was so slow was because this guy had ties to the RCMP, was an RCMP informant, and that's why they were hesitant to go in. Now, I'm not trying to give credence or non-credence to that, but I'm wondering if the inquiry is even trying to address it or if we're learning anything about that potential angle. I think we there have been some questions in in general around that, um, and I and I know that people are asking those questions among themselves, and certainly there's a lot of folks who who put a lot of credence in that. I haven't seen any evidence yet that there's any truth to that. I think the truth is far less uh, interesting. It's that the RCP were simply not prepared, and right. they were they were just simply disorganized and scrambling to prepare for this awful attack. But this idea that that 
that he, uh, you know, he was one of them and that's why the response was different. I don't see a lot of hard evidence to back that up. I thought a lot about this story last week in the wake of the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and what we're learning about how the police there uh, reacted while the shooter was inside the school. Do you see similarities, maybe not in the attacks themselves, but in in terms of the response and the emotions, I guess, that it generates from uh, those connected to them? Definitely. I mean, in both cases, you have a horrific mass shooting where, uh, you know, the public rightly expect the police to go in and protect them. And in both cases, there's a lot of evidence that the police were hesitant, um, that they they were worried about their own safety. And in some cases, you know, they prioritize protecting themselves over protecting the public. That that perception is deeply damaging to police services in, whenever it happens. And it, it is the case in Nova Scotia and it's the case in Texas. And I think that you know, in both cases, those police services are going to have a difficult job of recovering from that. It kind of sounds over the course of this conversation that the inquiry is is going along okay, but there's still an awful lot that we don't know, and it's still and and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, and it, and it's still pretty infuriating to the families of the victims. What could happen next to make this meaningful, both? in terms of addressing uh, reform for the RCMP and also uh, for the families to feel that that we've dug at the truth enough, I guess? Well, I think the families have been very clear that, that they want to have the opportunity to cross-examine all of these witnesses. They do not want any more special accommodations, regardless of who it is. Uh, you know, they have lawyers here representing them because there are questions they want to get to the bottom of and they want that opportunity. So, that, that's one first step that I think the uh, I think the commission is hearing that loud and clear that that these accommodations are causing a lot of problems. So that could go a long way to restoring some of the, the trust in this process. But certainly there are people who have already thrown their hands up and have walked away and have decided that this inquiry is not going to give them what they want. Um, and I don't know how you repair that. What happens when a community completely loses trust uh, in its police force like this? Well, it's deeply problematic. And in fact, we're seeing that conversation and that debate in Nova Scotia and other parts of Atlanta, Canada right now, that there are communities where people are openly saying, do we want the RCMP to protect us anymore? Would we be better off with a, with another kind of police force, with, a, with another municipal police force to protect us? Because they, they simply, many people appear to have lost faith, it, particularly in rural areas, in the RCMP's ability to protect them when they need them the most. Last question. Is anything about this process binding? Like, are there consequences that we know will come from this? Or is this just, let's get the truth out, let's get a report, and then uh, the institutions involved will have to make their own moves? No, unfortunately, nothing will be binding. So the inquiry is tasked with with, uh, producing a report that's going to have recommendations for government and, and likely the RCMP. Uh, on how to try to prevent these kind of uh, tragedies in the future. But they have no ability to enforce that. Um, and it's up to the institutions, it's up to the different levels of government who are paying for this inquiry uh, to take it seriously and to to adopt those measures. But all the this inquiry can do is recommend. Greg, thank you for this. As always, we'll check back in with you as this keeps going. My pleasure, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Greg Mercer of The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can hear our previous episodes 
on both the shooting and the inquiry. You can talk to us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. You can email us hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, now you can call us and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 416 935 5935. We are coming up to our 1000th episode. We're putting together something a little special just for fun. But if you want your question or comment or anything you'd like to say to be featured, you got to get it in soon. 416-935-5935. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. He takes over for Stephanie Phillips, who is now our showrunner. Ebian Abdiger and Braden Alexander produce this show with Joe. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now.